Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we'll talk with Carter Sneed a professor of law at the University of Notre Dame and director of Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Carter is the author of the recent book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He has served as general counsel to the President's Council on Bioethics, and he's our colleague at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he's a fellow in our Bioethics and American Democracy program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carter, for this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so we want to start with kind of getting to the the root of the problem here. We all know, uh, or pro-lifers, I suppose, are willing to acknowledge that abortion kills an innocent human being. We know that's, that's always morally wrong. That's the basic, uh, kind of the heart of the pro-life case. But can you go a little bit deeper for us and, and talk about kind of the fundamental problem with abortion, by which I mean how it, it contradicts a rightly ordered understanding of what it means to be human? Yeah, yeah. Um... If you look at if you look at Justice Blackmun's opinion, and if you uh, and if you look in Roe v. Wade, and, and also certainly the opinion of the plurality in Casey, they echo very much implicitly. They don't cite it directly, but they very much echo implicitly the philosophical literature on abortion, um, which basically tries to justify abortion according to two different arguments, one of which is the bodily dependence argument. The argument is that the mother has the right to eject the intruding stranger uh, in, from her body and, and to not extend the support of her body if she wishes. The Judith Jarvis Thompson violinist argument, which your listeners are probably familiar with, is the kind of canonical example of that. But then you also have what are a kind of personhood argument, making the claim that the unborn child is not a, a member of the moral and legal community, even though, as we all know, of course, some uh, abortion rights activists deny this, but they, the science is not on their side, that we all know that the, 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 the child in the womb is a living human organism. It's a living member of the human species. and uh, But the personhood argument seeks to constrict the circle of the moral and legal community and, and rule out um, certain living members of the species from that circle and therefore exposing them to a world in which they lack the protection of the law, including the laws against private violence. And they try to make the argument, they try to divide the world up into persons and non-persons based on different criteria that, of course, are set by the strong and the privileged according to their own interests. They frequently relate to uh, cognitive capacities. You have Michael Tooley, you have Marianne Warren, who try to associate uh, the essential characteristics of what it means to be a person with the capacity to formulate and pursue future directed plans, to have desires that you can express and pursue. And to your question, both of these arguments, both the, the bodily dependence argument and the personhood argument, uh, trade in assumptions about what it means to be human that are, I think, false and impoverished. They, they, in the book, I, I, I name the kind of false anthropology as expressive individualism, namely the, the idea that the, the, the basic unit of human reality is the individual person shorn of all connections, uh, abstracted from all relationships and, and, and connections, and whose highest flourishing is to discover inside, you know, by, by, by thinking and, and introspection and searching the depths of one's own sentiment, discovering our own authentic original truth, expressing it, then configuring our life plan accordingly. 
And in this framework, all relationships are transactional. There are no unchosen obligations. Um, and, and the world basically is a world of, uh, of, of atomized individual wills um, uh, that are seeking their own goals that they invent themselves and they encounter other wills, sometimes in a collaborative way, other times in relationships of strife where they have to overbear the other to realize their own, their own objectives. And that's really the vision that underlies the theories of personhood, bodily dependence, and frankly, the arguments in Roe and Casey. They describe the human context in which the issue of abortion arises as a conflict, a, a vital zero-sum conflict among strangers. Uh, the mother is not a mother. The mother is simply a woman who has a womb that belongs to her, that's her property. There's an intruding stranger that she did not invite in. Um, and, sh and, and, and so the question is, what do you do? And what, uh, it's not surprising when you frame the issue as a conflict among strangers fighting over scarce resources that properly belong to one of the two strangers. And, and, and when one of the strangers is deemed to be a person and the other one is somehow subpersonal, which is implicit in the black in the, in the row and Casey decisions and the philosophical literature that undergirds them, um, it's not surprising that what the court did was say, and what abortion advocates argue for is a right to private violence, to use private violence for the one party to fend off the other one. I mean, in Thompson, she gives, makes analogies to people fighting over a coat uh, that's necessary to survive the winter that belongs to one of the two parties. Well, that's that's how abortion, the, the human context of abortion, is conceived and framed by the abortion rights movement and by the jurisprudence that hopefully will be overturned very shortly. And what I suggest is that, in fact, that completely misunderstands the human reality and in the in the in the human context of this of this sometimes tragic circumstance, it's not a conflict among strangers fighting over scarce resources. It is in fact a mother and her child who already exist in relationship, an embodied relationship with one another, um, which which brings with it certain kinds of obligations, unchosen obligations, and unearned privileges. Children don't have to earn the right to be cared for by their parents. Parents don't. Uh, don't transact and contract for the obligation to care for their children. It's intrinsic to the relationship itself. And our reaction to the tragic, sometimes tragic circumstance of these pregnancies is different if we think about it through that lens. If we think about it as a, a conflict involving a mother and her child, any decent person would rush to the aid of the mother and child and provide them both with support and care and love as the pro-life movement seeks to do, as opposed to saying, Okay, one of you has the right to kill the other one to fight uh, to, to 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 possess the thing that you properly own. Carter, that that that's great. And can I get you to um, draw out the the last thirty seconds of what you just said a little bit further? Um, uh, because in the book, and you know, Zan and I love your book. We cite it all throughout our own book. When you know any any reader of both books will see it's you know it's heavily influenced um, our own thinking and our own writing. Um, and you helpfully um, describe two competing anthropologies. And you know, I've heard you give public lectures where you lay out the two competing anthropologies. And Zan's opening question really got you to elucidate what the bad anthropology is, yeah. uh, the expressive individualism, the dualism. And those last 30 seconds there, you kind of started articulating what the alternative uh, anthropology is. Yeah. Um, could you say more about that? You know, it, and I don't even know, do we have a name for the alternative anthropology? Yeah, I mean, like, in, the book, in the book, I call it an anthropology of embodiment. Um, because because the problem with expressive individualism, I mean, it does capture something true about our our, our lives. We are free, uh, we are particular, but that's not the full truth of who we are. And what expressive individualism ignores is the fact that we live our lives as embodied beings. We're a dynamic union 
of mind and body, not merely disembodied wills. Our body is not purely instrumental uh, in, in service of our will. In fact, our body is part is an essential part of our identity, which also, of course, includes our our, our will and our mind integrated in a in a in a kind of seamless way. But as Gil Mylander says, the body, in at least in this life, is the locus of personal presence. There's and if you ignore the body, and if you ignore the fact that being embodied beings has certain kinds of entailments. It makes us vulnerable because we're fragile beings in time with corruptible bodies. And that stands us into a certain kind of relationship vis-a-vis one another, I argue, because we're vulnerable, we're dependent upon one another, we're, we're reciprocally indebted to one another, and we're subject to natural limits. And uh, by reflecting on those entailments of embodiment in the book, I argue that there are certain uh, what what an embodied being needs is not the freedom of the unencumbered will and 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 access to violence to fend off intruders, but rather uh, what we need to survive and flourish as embodied beings are what Alistair McIntyre calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, which are composed of people who are willing to make the good of others their own good for the sake of the other, not seeking anything in return, not in a transactional way. And the most pristine example of this is the family, right? Like, as I said a moment ago, parents don't take care of children because they are obliged by contract to take care of their children because of some, it's not a creature of consent. It's a fa- it's a, it's it's implicit in the relationship itself. A parent's job is to make the good of their child their own good, and the child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for in that relationship. But it's not simply the family; it ex- ex- it extends outward to communities and even you know, even even um, you know more broadly than that. And it seems to me that uh, in order to survive, uh, basic survival depends on someone making our good, their good. None of us would be on this podcast right now if someone, probably our parents, decided to care for us without seeking anything in return. Um, and um, But more than just for basic survival, I argue it teaches us the thing that we're supposed to be. That is the kind of person who can make the good of another our own good. And to put it sort of more succinctly in the book, I argue by virtue of our embodiment, we're made for love and friendship. And there are certain kinds of virtues and practices that are essential to strengthening, creating, and shoring up these networks, namely um, the, the, um, the, the, the virtues of, um, of, of graceful receiving and um, unconditional giving. And, um, uh, and unconditional giving includes the, the, the virtues of just generosity, hospitality, misericordia, that is making the suffering of another your own suffering to seek to heal and comfort them, but if not, if that's not possible to accompany, merely to accompany them. And of course, the the virtues of graceful receiving, uh, which include principally uh, chief among them, gratitude, from which follows humility, solidarity, respect for human dignity, um, openness to the unbidden, and other other goods as well. I, I love that. And, and and you say it so, um, so beautifully, um, really, you know, inspiring. Uh, and I, I want to just ask a f- quick follow up and maybe it's not so quick. Uh, it'll be quick for me to ask it. It might be longer mm. for you to answer it. Um, you haven't mentioned God or religion uh, in either of these anthropologies. And so I, I just wonder at the, at the anthropological level, the philosophical level, what role does God and religion play in the competing anthropologies? And then in the applied level of, you know, as applied to abortion, what role do you see God and religion uh, playing? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. Um, I, you're right. In the book, I don't appeal to God or religion. Um, however, everything I say in the book is coherent with and 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 of a piece with 
the teachings of you know of well, certainly of the Catholic faith, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, the one that I profess and is the most important thing to me. Um, but uh, I wanted to write the book in a way that made it um, accessible and intelligible to a secular audience. And I think there's a way to kind of describe. Um, and again, the, the the sort of the philosophical level, the book is not a, a comprehensive work of philosophy or theology. It's It's basically, it appeals to people's experience and their practical wisdom to, to confirm the arguments that I'm making, right? I want people to understand, like, if you think about your life, if you think about it in a non-idealized and in a, in a, re, in a realistic way, you real and you think about the arc of your life, both in the past and the future, um, you realize that your embodiment matters and it matters in these ways uh, that that uh, and and the, and the brute reality is for us to survive and flourish. We need these networks. We need, but basically, what I'm I mean, a more succinct version of what I'm talking about is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, so I mean, like the it is. In fact, when I was talking um, to Harvard University Press about the cover art, um, they were very generous to listen to me. But at the end of the day, it was their call as to what the cover art was. I said, let's get a beautiful you know rendering of the Good Samaritan because that kind of captures. The anthropology of embodiment, the idea of who is, you know, you are, you are called to care for your neighbor. That's what it, we're, we're most human when we're taking care of each other and, and, and taking care of each other, not because we're trying to get anything for ourselves, but because that's, that's what it means to be and flourish as a human being, to care for one another. And they said, well, we appreciate that. Um, and then they went with a picture of two like weird nude people on the front, not literally, <laughs> but, but like, but like, I mean, it's a good cover. I'm not criticizing the cover, but, but it's a, it's a science fiction looking Sounds cover. like you are. Yeah. Uh, not at all. I would never <laughs> dream to consider to criticize the amazing people at Harvard University Press. They're fantastic. But, um, in any event, they really are fantastic, by the way, the people that I worked with are amazing. But, um, um, I should say though, that, uh, that a Catholic person or a Christian person or a, or a person who, um, you know, is a, a adherent to any of the faiths that that have that that have that profess similar truths. Uh, I think could feel very comfortable, um, sort of reading the book, thinking about the arguments, and, and contextualizing within, within their own within their own faith. Now, as I said earlier, a moment ago, it's not again. The book doesn't argue, doesn't like derive first principles. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't go that deep on purpose. It's a book about. It's a kind of proposal. To, for fellow citizens to think about in a kind of pluralistic society. But if you were to press, I mean, the deeper question is, you know, um, why do we take care of each other? I think that's what it means to be a human being and love and friendship are at the core of what and who we are. Um, you know, is it possible to maintain that kind of a normative posture without ultimately appealing to God uh, uh, and maybe not just any God, but, but, uh, but, but, but the God of the Bible, um, you know, that's a very hard question. And I, some very smart people have suggested that it's not possible. Um, Gil Mylander, I think, is, is, is uh, the most interesting person to read on that front. I want to thank you for those um, really helpful thoughts. And I, I really want to add to what Ryan said about how helpful your book was in writing ours. And not only that, I, I would really encourage um, readers or listeners, I suppose, to read it because it was formative for my my thought about abortion and about just human life in general, what it means to be human. So formative that I kind of the seeds of what ended up being the thesis of our book really came to me while I was reading yours. So I'm really grateful for oh, your work. I'm grateful. Um, we are here today in a sense because of it. So, um, but switching gears a little bit, I we want to talk uh, about kind of our laws, and, and you're an expert on this, Rowan Casey, what they said. Um, but more than that, kind of how uh, the flaws of Rowan Casey 
have negatively affected our, our legal system and how, um, you know, undoing them is necessary really to, to rectify those harms. Yeah, I would say, I mean, in addition to the horrible body count, um, let, let's just be clear with your listeners. I'm sure they already know this, but Roe v. Wade, for the first time by the Supreme Court in American history, declared that our Constitution itself, the very document that creates our, our republic and the very document that defines the defines our government and defines the relationship between government and citizens to a large extent, um, that document itself declares the unborn child to be a non-person. It, 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 despite what Roe v. Wade says, a legal non-person. Roe v. Wade says, oh, we're not going to take a position on whether or not the unborn child is a person. We, we don't think it's a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment, um, the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, which is a very, very um, uh, – it was, it was not a very compelling interpretive exercise in Roe v. Wade. It's like he looks at the five or six other uses of the word person and concludes that since they don't refer to prenatal human beings, this must not – either. Um, put that to the side, you don't have to declare the unborn child to be a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment to treat the child as a person in the laws of the separate states or even by the federal government. You could say, you could treat the child as a person, um, provide the same protections that persons have. We, we, we protect other entities, non-human entities all the time with the full force of the law. I mean, you can imagine the Endangered Species Act. You can imagine all kinds. There are ways in which we protect certain class of living beings. Uh, and there's no reason why. And up until that point, from from really the nation's founding, before the nation founding, the common law of England, and then especially, it was especially clear in the middle of the, of the 19th century when uh, more was understood about human embryology and uh, and the states started to codify bans on abortion from the moment of conception, um, which, by the way, is contemporaneous with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, um, which is the source of authority the court falsely claims gives a right to abortion. So, I mean, just on its face, it's absurd if you have any limited – if your interpretive method of reading the Constitution is restricted in any way, you can't possibly argue that, a that a, an amendment that was – adopted in 1868 or ratified in 1868 at a time when abortion was basically illegal everywhere and became even more restrictive in the in the in the year that the after the ratification by the various states um, that somehow that language precludes states from protecting unborn children nobody on the Supreme Court seriously thought that until the latter part of the 20th century and what Roe v Wade says is um, states you may not you may not adopt one theory of life, and, and, and protect the unborn child as a person because uh, of the burdens on women of unplanned pregnancy, but also, the, as the court makes clear, unplanned parenthood. The burdens on women that are imposed by uh, unplanned pregnancy includes, according to Justice Blackman, the, um, the, uh, not just the physical and psychic burdens of pregnancy itself, but the burdens of raising a child that is unwanted. And not just on the um, on on the mother, but on the whole family and community uh, of the unwanted child, and then in Doe v. Bolton decided the same day as Roe v. Wade, uh, in sketching out what what constitutes medical judgment in this space for whether abortion is needed or not. It includes not just physical or emotional health, but familial health. So um, 
So on the one side, and the, again, just to be clear, the right to abortion emerges in Roe v. Wade from a balancing of the court's understanding of the burdens on women on the one hand and the state's interest in maternal health and the life of the unborn child on the other, which they describe as potential life, which is biologically incoherent because it's actually a, a life present in process. It's not potential life. Um, but nevertheless, they say by weighing these two competing interests, we conclude that the mother's interests are so significant and the state's interests are so diminished that the state's forbidden from treating the unborn child as if he or she were a person. Um, and the violence that that does, putting aside the 60 plus million abortions that have happened since 1973 uh, by forbidding the states from protecting unborn children, if we think about for a moment what it means for the Supreme Court of the United States to say that our constitution is the thing that forbids us from protecting the weakest and most vulnerable that, that is a stain and, and, a, and a corruption that, that has to be removed. Um, it's not enough that, that – um, I mean we, that has to be declared null and void, which I hope and pray will be the case, especially if the draft opinion of Justice Alito becomes the opinion of the court. Um, so Roe v. Wade obviously led to 60-plus million abortions in America. Uh, it, it corrupted and destroyed our constitution. I mean your entire book is about how abortion destroys everything it touches. It destroys the – parental relationship. It destroys the practice of medicine. It destroys the law. I mean, Roe and Casey and abortion jurisprudence generally was described as a post hoc nullification machine by some justices saying, no matter what the settled law is in a particular area, if the topic is abortion, you're going to, the law, the, the outcome of the case is going to bend in the direction of promoting abortion, even if that means departing from well-settled legal principles. And Justice Alito goes through that in his draft opinion. He talks about the law of standing. He talks about First Amendment law. He talks about res judicata, which is a civil procedure principle. About, I mean, even, even the context of stare decisis is changed and bent um, uh, in, if, the, if the topic is abortion, as we saw in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Carter, you, you, you just gave the um, perfect segue uh, to the next question because you, know, you, you mentioned that our book you know, touches on everything that abortion has harmed and it harms everything it touches. Um, our fifth chapter you know, goes through um, how it's harmed constitutional um, self-government. Um, but then it's the prior chapter, chapter four, is how it harms medicine. Um, and you, you had just mentioned that. And we want to get you to say a little bit more um, about that because it seems like the logic of abortion – uh, the logic of abortion on demand has not been contained to abortion, um, that that logic has corrupted uh, the medical profession. And you can see this in how it's extended um, to recent pushes for the legalization of physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, embryo-destructive research. I know you've, you kind of really got your professional um, start working on the President's Council for Bioethics during many of the debates surrounding cloning and embryo-destructive yep. research. Um, and your book covers many of these questions. So. Uh, could you help our listeners understand like how that logic has played yeah. out yeah. uh, to these other areas? So to understand the corruption of the practice of medicine by abortion itself, we have to start with what medicine is. Um, and this is – and it's it, – I mean so medicine is a profession, right? That's, that's the kind of most important insight. Medicine is a profession. It's not simply a set of skills or techniques that are brought to bear in service – of the desires of the of the customer, sometimes called you know, that we normally call a patient, right? Um, Ed Pellegrino, who was the chair of the President's Council on Bioethics after Leon Cass, Leon Cass himself, Gil Mylander, but Ed and Leon, especially because they are trained as physicians, write very beautifully, especially Leon, about I mean Ed's great too; they're both great about um, 
about what medicine is and and where the norms and ethics, uh, the ethical principles come from. And it's not necessary to get into the weeds on their kind of internalist perspective on how the norms of ethic, ethical principles emerge from the practice itself. Um, what it's more important to focus on is the more is the basic point that Go Mylander also talks about that um, that a profession is different from a mere set of skills that you apply in service of whoever pays you. A profession is organized around a good to be advanced. It's a good to be professed. It's everything you do is accountable to that good. Everything you do is understood through the lens of pursuing that animating good. And um, the good of 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 medicine, the practice of medicine is the good of health is the is the is the ministry to health it is to serve the health of the patient by the lights of the physician according to his or her training and expertise but also according to their fidelity to the ultimate good of their profession which is which is the definition of health which i think most people take to be uh, the the well functioning of the organism in its species specific context it is what is what does a healthy organism look like it's not so it's a kind of objective reality. It's not merely subjective. It's not merely defined by the desires and the wishes of the patient. But we've seen a transformation in the practice of medicine um, with, and again, I mean, the story of the practice of medicine and medical ethics in the United States is an interesting story. It sort of begins with uh, total confidence and trust in physicians. Uh, physicians adopted a kind of paternalistic posture towards uh, their patients, and that was fine with the patients because they trusted the, the physician and they understood the physician was almost sort of part of their family in, in, a, in a kind of priestly role, ministering not just to the to the to the to the health of the of the individual, but to the to the whole family itself and to the person's well functioning in a, in a broad and holistic sense. But then, gradually over time, and kind of ironically, as physicians became more technically adept at mastering the tools of their profession, especially different pharmacological interventions, different genetic advances. Um, it was perceived, rightly or wrongly, that physicians were becoming more humanly distant from their patients as they were becoming more technically skilled. And so the outcomes were, in, in large part, better for patients, but, but patients were felt left out of the decision-making, felt like the doctors were thinking of them and treating them as objects to be worked on and puzzles to be solved through mechanistic um, techniques rather than uh, in a kind of a reductive way rather than as people uh, to be to be cared for. And so there was a backlash and the normative embodiment of that backlash was the kind of emphasis and the rise of informed consent and patient autonomy, which was meant as a, to push back against the um, uh, what was perceived as a, an overbearing paternalism and a kind of loss of the human connection between doctors and patients. Um, but what it seems to be the case, and one could probably make the argument that this is over this 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 appropriate concern for autonomy of the patient and being involved in their medical decision making um, was in, can be can be taken too far and the good of autonomy um, can grow so large and, and set that it can over that it can overwhelm even the central animating norms of medicine itself and the idea is could could become that really doctors are just service providers for whatever the patient happens to want and the desires of the patient are what define what the doctor does and doesn't do. And, and we see this in the abortion context. We see this with the sort of the, the highly politicized leadership of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who are pushing back against conscience protections for doctors. And I think that the, the freedom of the physician to, to, to practice medicine in accordance with the good of medicine, namely the good of health, 
according to his or her judgment, professional judgment, is, is actually not even best framed as a, as a matter of conscience. I mean, of course, it involves conscience, but it actually just is a matter of what it means to be a doctor, to, 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 to practice medicine, to serve the good of the patient as you see in light of your training and the good of health. And an abortion, uh, through, in many, many doctors' opinions, and if you look at the surveys, a lot of doc, not many doctors, not many OBGYNs will actually perform abortions. It's, it's um, despite the uh, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists prioritizing abortion, really I should say the leadership, because the membership, I think, has a different view than the leadership, but the leadership is, is kind of takes, takes the official positions, and, um, and it's radical. They say that, you know, you, you should be made to perform an abortion. If, uh, if, if you're not, um, if there's nobody else to do it, or you should be made to refer someone for an abortion, even if you believe correctly that that's the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And a doctor could say, and it's not a matter of conscience, but a matter of professionalism. Look, I don't think that abortion in almost any situation actually serves the health of the patient. It's a, it's an elective procedure to take care of a, of a kind of social problem. Um, and, uh, and again, we're blessed, it's blessedly rare that abortions are needed to preserve the physical health and for sure the life of the mother. Um, studies, including from the Guttmacher Institute, show that most abortions are, are decisions are made in light of other concerns, concerns about um, not, not wanting to or being able to care for the child um, and not, not uh, you know, being concerned about financial issues or being concerned about um, the interference that a child would present to one's future plans. And, um, and that, 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 by the way, points us as pro-lifers in the direction of things that we need to do and, and how we can reach out and care for those women in crisis and those families in crisis and things that we need to do uh, to try to help them um, choose life uh, and to care for their babies or to make an adoption plan if that's what they decide to do. Um, and so the bottom line, though, is that I think that this kind of emphasis on autonomy overall has led to a diminishment of the of, of the notion of medicine as a profession and as you say it's not limited to abortion i mean you have uh, someone shows up they say doctor i want you to prescribe me with barbiturates so i can kill myself um you know thank goodness the ama still takes the view that that is uh, a corruption of what the good of medicine is itself and medicine the, the end of medicine is healing and and comforting it and, and to, to, to facilitate and be handmaiding of death, whether it be an abortion or an, or assisted suicide, is the, is the very antithesis of that. Yeah, it, it's very interesting that you raise um, ACOG and kind of the, the pro-abortion turn of a lot of these major medical organizations. You're definitely right that most doctors, most OBGYNs do not agree with these groups. Um, but we talk a bit in the book, we have a whole, whole chapter on medicine, and we talk about kind of the history of how ACOG and, and pro-abortion kind of elite doctors were the chief drivers, actually, of the pro-abortion movement around the time of Roe. They lobbied the Supreme Court very heavily and, and I think were decisive uh, in this argument that, you know, if a doctor thinks that, that a woman needs an abortion, um, his judgment or, or I suppose her judgment should uh, trump, right? The doctor should get to decide, not the government. That was the line. It was very doctor-centric, very much about the autonomy, the rights of the doctor um, to, to exercise his or her medical judgment. And now, if a doctor has a medical judgment, actually abortion isn't necessary. ACOG says, oh, too bad, do the abortion any anyway, right? So that's really, it, it's really all about just promoting abortion. It's not actually about doctors' consciences or what they think is, is medically best. Um, so switching, I guess we'll go back to, to the law for a moment. Um, last December, I think there were some, some reports that 
Uh, The attorney general of Wisconsin had said he would not enforce the state's existing prohibition on abortion if Roe v. Wade were overturned and and that law was able to take effect. I've seen similar things cropping up here and there. Essentially, progressive uh, people in charge will not enforce pro-life laws, even if they're on the books. What are we to do about that? What can we do? Yeah. So this is is the great um, unmentioned premise of the Texas law that was so widely condemned in the popular press, uh, the heartbeat law that had a very unusual mechanism of uh, forbidding the state from enforcing it and instead um, def- uh, transferring that authority to private citizens who would bring civil suits against everybody who's involved in the provision of an abortion after a heartbeat's detectable, except for the mother herself, right? She was immunized from civil suit in that case, as mothers are uh, immunized from uh, criminal liability in every modern abortion law that, that I'm familiar with. Um, uh, so, uh, there was a whole group of district attorneys and prosecutors in Texas who signed a letter saying they would never enforce pro-life laws in Texas. And so the Texas legislature, um, decided they had to figure out a way to get the law enforced. And, and they came up with the, that idea, the civil, the civil, uh, lawsuit idea. There are other approaches, uh, that are more conventional. One could simply pass a statute that says, that if you have a faithless uh, district attorney or a faithless attorney general, that 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 uh, the governor or or somebody else um, designating some other person or maybe even a, a hierarchy of people, uh, you know, a list of people who have the authority uh, to enforce the law. Um, but yeah, this is a real problem, and you see this as you say. There's all kinds of. I mean, imagine, it, you know, honestly, it's what it's reminiscent of is the civil rights movement of the '60s. It's 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 Bull Connor. It's uh, it's George Wallace standing in the courthouse door, preventing you know little black kids from going to going to school with white kids. It is a, a last gasp of r- refusing refusing to uh, to to participate in in, in 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 to abide by the law because you're so committed to the uh, to, to in this case abortion, which is by the way also a form of radical discrimination, ruling out singling out one segment of the human family for uh, radical discrimination to, to remove from them the protection of the law. And, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these commentators these days are trying to connect white supremacy and racism to the pro-life movement. When in fact, as we all know on this call, and probably your listeners too, the, uh, the truth is almost exactly the opposite. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer was a pro-life civil rights leader in Mississippi at the same time George Wallace was advocating for abortion. Uh, because he didn't want African-Americans reproducing. Um, modern white supremacists like Richard Spencer um, love abortion uh, they, because they understand that, that uh, black and brown and poor people are the primary targets for abortion. I mean, it's literally true. And Margaret Sanger is a kind of complicated figure because I, I'm not exactly sure what she thought about abortion. She criticized it publicly. I don't know exactly. She was not a proponent of abortion. Let's just put it that way officially. But she nevertheless, I mean, was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And uh, a lot of people took um, you know, took her thinking and ran with it on the question of abortion. And she literally gave us a, a speech to the Ku Klux Klan Women Auxiliary in Silver Lake, New Jersey in the late 1920s. Now, people defending her say, well, she wasn't a racist. Well, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to speak to what her views were, but for some reason she thought she would find a receptive audience in the Ku Klux Klan Women's Auxiliary. Um, and, and that's, I think, indisputable. And so um, the effort to try to hang around the necks of the pro-life movement, this notion of white supremacy, is is, is sort of diabolically false. In, in the uh, third chapter of the book, we look through... Um how, how abortion particularly harms 
you know, segments of the population that are already marginalized, uh, people of color, uh, little girls, you know, uh, elevated um, discriminatory rates of abortion, people with disabilities diagnosable in the womb. Um, and, and we cite Richard Spencer, we cite Margaret Sanger. You know, in Sanger's case, it was much more a push of contraception right. uh, for eugenics uh, purposes. Uh, obviously, Spencer has embraced abortion for similar uh, uh, purposes. Um, but we're running out of time, and so I want to um, kind of pivot towards um, uh, kind of a, a wrap-up question. Um, you mentioned earlier that the, the the name you would give to the alternative anthropologies and anthropology of embodiment. You also write beautifully in the book um, about you know the truth of what it is to be a human is that we belong to each other, uh, and you know and that was the theme of of, of your conference this yep. past yep. Uh, uh, November at Notre Dame. Um, can you give kind of you know some closing reflections on what do we as a pro-life movement, as you know an American political community, need to do um, post row, uh, assuming that that's what Dobbs gives us, right? I think a post Dobbs, post row world. Yeah. Um, what do we need to do? Give us some marching orders. Yeah. So um, it's funny the the person who said that, the person who said um, the the core problem, as a paraphrase, in the world is that we've forgotten that we belong to each other was Mother Teresa. Uh, and and she in, in sort of is, in my mind, the most inspirational figure for what I think we have to do next in terms of um, not just what she did in terms of caring for for, for the, the poorest of the poor and, and the kind of the, the people that no one would even look, look at, much less help in the slums of Calcutta. Um, and she, but, but the sort of, but the way that she did it, the way that she did what she did was so transformative and so countercultural and so kind of shocking. I mean, we, we, you know, you and I and Zan are in the kind of argument business. Like we, we make arguments, we read things and we critique arguments. And that's important. I'm not undervaluing that. But there's, I, I don't like the chances of mere argumentation from changing hearts and minds of the most hardened, committed people to, to the issue of abortion, especially, especially those people who have tragically and there are many of them have had abortions in their lives. They're post-abortive, and it's sort of unimaginable to even suggest that what they did was the reality of the matter, taking the life of their own child. I mean, so we have to be we, so we have to really practice uncon unconditional love, the likes of which Mother Teresa showed us, caring for others, including especially those that we disagree with, as if they were Jesus Himself. Okay, so now I'm going to get religious on you. So like, so like, like as, Please do. as 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 if I mean the 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 way the Good Samaritan uh, acted, right? So like, we need to, of course, take care of moms and babies. Of course, we need to, and and to, to their credit, the pro life movement has been at the forefront of that for forever. And we need to double down on that. We need to care for moms and babies and children. We need to do so in a way that is creative and thoughtful and is not doesn't bind ourselves to 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 political orthodoxies or dogmas and politics and you know, commitments or procedural commitments, uh, political ones. Um, but I think even more so with people that we disagree with, we have to, people will know who we are by how we love them. And um, it seems to me that uh, you can, you can melt someone's heart by actually loving them and by saying to them, look, I understand that you argue for something that I consider to be unspeakably horrible. But it doesn't change the fact that you're a human being and the core of the pro-life movement is that everybody matters, everybody counts, everybody belongs, no matter who you are, no matter what other people think of you, no matter how weak you are or vulnerable you are. And that kind of – that sort of openness and hospitality and love, unconditional, uh, can, is something that we have to 
translate in our interpersonal relationships with everybody. And so it'll it'll shock and it'll be so countercultural. And it's not to say it's easy. And and I mean, I'm, I'm certainly like I fail at it all the time more than I mean, almost always. Right. I mean, it's rare to even be marginally successful in this. But but um, the truth of the matter is we have to we have to do it because that's that's what trans that that love is that self-emptying love is what changes the world. Uh, not not arguments, although arguments are important to include. Beautiful. Thank you, Carter. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a wonderful conversation, Carter. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.